Hello and welcome to Looking Forward, the IPA's newest and shiniest podcast. The big questions this week. Where were you when the lights went out? Is BuzzFeed finished or is that just more fake news? And why are our Kiwi friends across the ditch gunning for GDP and economic growth? I'm Scott Hargraves. I'm going to introduce my guest panellists in a moment. But first, my co-host, Dr Chris Berg from RMIT, who's going to tell you a little bit about Looking Forward. Thanks, Scott. As listeners um, will know, this is uh, Looking Forward, named after the first IPA publication in 1944. That publication set the agenda for the uh, for private enterprise in the second half of the 20th century. We modestly hope that this podcast can do the same for the 21st. That would be the first modest thing we've done for a while, Chris. <laughs> uh, I'm joined, first of all, by my colleague, Andrew Bushnell. Thanks for having me. And RMIT academic, Aaron Lane. Good to be with you. Great. First of all, let's look at the electricity crisis that we faced in the southern states, particularly in Victoria last Friday. And I might just, before I ask Chris to tell us about that, I want to read a quote out. As the temperature was approaching 42 degrees Celsius in Melbourne, Victoria's Energy Minister, Lily D'Ambrosio, said, blackouts are something that will absolutely not be a feature of today or a possibility. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, look, so I was one of the uh, 200,000 people who uh, suffered the blackout. It wasn't that bad. I just left my house and went to um, uh, the local shopping centre. But um, I I think this is is a hugely significant thing for um, the national energy market. It's not like the rolling blackouts and brownouts that we have in South Australia. We're now getting what they call brownouts, of course, which aren't real blackouts because they're intentional, but we're getting power loss during really strong heat waves in the second largest city in Australia. This tells you that energy policy, regardless of what side you are on, has completely and utterly failed in Australia. In what way has it failed, Andrew Bushnell? I think that what we're, what we're seeing here is that you know, you've, the, you've seen a lot of confusion created in the market and what the what the left is what the left tells you about this is that you know you're not seeing investment in um, renewables or in coal because the government has you know introduced carbon tax, taken away carbon tax, and created this confusion. But of course, they created the confusion by creating the question in the first place. So we've seen underinvestment in the kinds of ele- uh, electricity generation that can actually feed a large city like this or a large country like we are becoming. Yeah, look, and, and it's interesting in that because we've seen um, – so so the, uh, a lot of advocates of renewable energy will, will point out that there have been really large sums of money put into renewable energy over the last couple of years um, until relatively recently when the coalition um, changed its energy policy. Um, but what that's hiding is that that's a – so there's like $10 billion put into, national, into renewable energy last year. What, they're just chasing regulatory benefits. What we're not seeing the investment right now is – is in the the more mundane aspects of the grid, of planning the national energy grid, ensuring that the power is not just you know fashionably renewable, but actually stays on. We don't have a robust electricity market right now, even if we've got a lot of renewables in it. Yeah, and we've seen um, sort of coal power plants and you know, Hazelwood being shut down, and we've had nothing to um, really enter the market to take up that slack and. Um, I think what we've what we saw last week uh, was a, it was a demand problem. You know, everyone turned their air conditioners on, and you know, because it was hot. And you know, it, it wasn't that the electricity uh, sort of assets couldn't deal with it. It was d- demand was too great. You know, we need more supply in the market. 
And that that was the response of uh, Richard D. Natale, the, the Greens leader, of course, who thought that we were part of the problem because we had the temerity to want to turn our air conditioning on and wanted to actually uh, use appliances and, and on a 42 degrees to, day. And he compared it to war rationing. You know, he, <laughs> he, he literally said, oh, well, we, we rationed things during the war. Well... Who's the enemy that we are fighting right now? Um, yeah, he almost let it slip. He almost let slip what the real agenda here is, which is to get us used to the idea of using less electricity because they know that their dream of a low-carbon future can't actually supply the electricity that we're used to consuming. So they want us to, they want us to get used to using less because they can't supply what it is that we actually want uh, and they won't allow anyone else... You know, They won't allow the policy settings that will... Uh, allow us to consume what we want to consume. I think it was deeper than that. You know, he, he was literally talking about war rationing as, as if there was some sort of parallel. Now we've got a new enemy to fight. And the, the, the enemy isn't coming at us with guns, um, but it's coming at us with warmer climates and climate change and, and all those sorts of things. And that we have to sort of respond with an equal sort of policy setting, you know, to, to fight this enemy. Um, that we can't really quite define and we can't really see, um, but we have to put in place those sort of policy settings to, you know, to, to fight this enemy. I think you're absolutely right there, Aaron. What What is happening here, it's not a technocratic problem any longer. And, and Berg's talked about policy failure. But the it's hard to find technocratic answers when the whole thing has been taken over by various romantic notions, uh, whether it's uh, of, a, of a command economy like, like in wartime, or indeed uh, the way we get tropes about things like innovation. And there's nothing less innovative than a wind farm. Actually getting giant blades shipped from Denmark or China uh, and attached to a motor that also came from Denmark or China and put on top of a great big steel tower on top of a concrete slab. This is actually a very low-tech solution. Uh, innovation can come from all forms of energy, but the, it's the way these things are owned by the renewable energy industry uh, that gets me. Look, I, I, I'm going to disagree slightly. I like wind farms. I, I think I'm, I'm not with Joe Hockey on this one. I think wind farms are pretty. Uh, I think they, they uh, and, and there's obviously been a great deal of innovation in renewable energy. And I think that's great. I think that's fantastic. That's part of the slow um, multi-century year decarbonisation of the economy. What I really don't like is the fact that we've decided that the um, most important thing is one particular feature of electricity or energy generation, which is, you know, is it decarbonizing rather than its robustness, its um, uh, supply and demand management, the, the sorts of things that we need from an electricity market. Now, I, I, I think that to, to go to Andrew's point, I think there's, there's a really fundamental dispute or disagreement underlying all this debate. Um, the the Greens and the government, both sides of government, have obsessively focused on mitigating climate change. And they've seen that as what we have to do. The sole thing that we have to do to respond to climate change is to reduce our, um, quote, dirty electricity production or dirty energy production. Whereas they're completely ignoring the adaptation problem, the temperatures are going to go up, they're going to go down, some of it will be human caused, some of it will be natural, but we need to be able to adapt to those problems. We need to be able to deal with that issue. And 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 what we've seen this week or last week, what we've seen last week is just an utter failure to allow us to adapt. 
Yeah, I would definitely agree with that, Chris. And I think about at least part of it, which is that, you know, I'm not an expert in this. And, and I, as speaking as an average punter, <laughs> I just, when I flick the switch, I just want the lights to come on. I don't really care. To be honest, I don't really care where the electricity comes from. I want it to be reliable and I want to be able to afford it. And that's what, what we're seeing. What we're not seeing here is any concern about the end user. What does this electricity system really exist for? It doesn't exist for, um, you know, signaling your, you know, your green uh, virtues or anything. What it exists for is the comfort of people like me who don't really know much about the electricity market, but who consume <laughs> electricity to, you know, and to have the lifestyle that I'm accustomed to. And it, it, it's interesting that, you know, the Greens used to be um, the sort of party that cared about, say, the growth of the population and they cared about these, you know, that, or they, they claim to. And they've sort of completely forgotten about that. They don't, they don't really care. They have, this, they have this sort of low growth posture or decarbonisation posture, but they don't actually care about growth as such because they know that that would offend um, a whole bunch of their activists. To get back right at the start of this, Andrew, you, you were making the point about, um, you know, sort of a, a policy setting and, and creating the problems and a, and a lack of investment. I think, I think one of the problems at the moment is that, you know, we don't have a policy setting where we can have a fight about the emissions and renewable element, but preserve the uh, the, the sort of the reliability and the affordability part. And that's kind of what the government was getting to um, when Josh Frydenberg was the energy minister. He always talked about this trilemma of energy policy, ab about affordability, about reliability and about emissions. Um, and that was what the National Energy Guarantee was trying to bring those sort of three elements together. Um, it, you know, some people thought that was a bit ham-fisted, um, where we could sort of have that debate about emissions and, you know, the, the Labor Party said, great, you know, we can ratchet up the, the emissions targets using this policy framework. Um, instead, we've seemed to have thrown everything out um, uh, and there's nothing yet to replace it. And unless we've got anything to replace it, we're not going to see that long-term investment because the investment horizons for, for power generation are, you know, 20, 30, 40-year investment horizons. I think the one thing that we can be sure of is that uh, in response to mini crises, rolling crises, rolling blackouts, uh, governments will reach into the, uh, their regulatory toolkit. Uh, there's legislation before the federal parliament at the moment uh, which is going to further regulate generators. So uh, it's one of the things that you always see in a, in a market-based system that is starting to break down uh, in part because of regulations like the renewable energy target in this case. But as it breaks down, the call, the call is actually for more and more regulation and we've created more and more regulators involved in the national electricity market and there are uh, more and more regulatory interventions being scheduled by state and federal governments. And so the market itself is no longer the driving force and as you say, the practical result is zero investment. Look, uh, I, I think that's all right, but I think the idea that we're going to come to a policy that, A, gives the government um, uh, power over deciding emissions and clear up uncertainty is uh, – I, I just think that's fantastic. I don't think it's going to happen. The, the big problem so, – so right now we're in a situation where it's very likely that a Labor government will move towards a national energy guarantee or a carbon tax. They, they, and they will turn the carbon tax back on. The next government may well turn the carbon tax 
back off. Even if we got to some agreement about what the structure of that policy would be, say let's let's say we all got on board the national energy guarantee, the, the one government's going to raise it, one government's going to lower it, one government's any time you have a government that has decided that the most important thing is the way electricity or energy is generated rather than just the fact that it's responding to market supply and market demand, you're going to have deep uncertainty. So I'm not sure there's a way through this. I think that we're going to face serious underinvestment and serious uncertainty for as long as we discuss climate change and emissions reduction. I I I, I cannot see a way through that morass. And I think that the the Greens, when you when you see someone like Richard Di Natale, who really knows better, um, I think, um, <laughs> I hope, um, suggest, suggesting that suggesting that the solution to this is you know at hand and it's more windmills and things. I think what you're seeing is that the the moral case for climate change action is actually collapsing. I think that the left thought that if they won or fought to a standstill an argument about the empirical science, that everyone would just get on board with their policy prescriptions. And now they're sort of flailing about because people don't actually want to do the things that they want to do. I'd, I'd have to disagree there, Andrew, because renewable energy is not really about climate change. As I say, it's it's a set of uh, romantic associations around uh, being green, being innovation. I mean, even the great Dr. Berg here started to reel off phrases like, you know, dirty energy. I mean, this, <laughs> this was uh, the anathema. I said, quote, dirty energy. <laughs> yeah, but that, that was the point. Uh, that, that was a deliberate strategy to use the language of pollution uh, around carbon dioxide. And the, uh, it was even in the name of the Gillard government's uh, carbon tax. And uh, similarly, you, you, uh, you're talking about the aesthetics of wind farms as if, as if that is a thing that actually matters. The fact that they might be, you might find them pretty to look at is actually irrelevant, but it does tell us, I think, what is really the, the problem here. Australians were happy to get rid of the carbon tax because you're right, Andrew, about that part of it because it was about climate change and it was about paying a tax and Abbott correctly surmised that people didn't want to pay that tax. But renewable energy just has this aura about it which is skewing all of the policy solutions. It's, uh, it's interesting, Scott. I grew up in Portland, um, which is on the southwest coast of Victoria. And uh, there are a lot of, you know, sort of environmental, you know, sort of hippies uh, that live just outside of town in sort of Cape Bridgewater. And um, they were absolutely opposed to these wind farms being on the capes. You know, there were bumper stickers saying, you know, don't destroy our capes and um, I visited there, you know, over summer um, back home to mum and dad, and 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 there they all are now. Um, anywhere that was, um, you know, pristine coastline and a beautiful capes is now um, blighted with these things. Um, so, it, but, but, it, but it's but it's interesting where the opposition came from. Uh, it, it it wasn't. Um, you know, it wasn't sort of, you know, the, the Liberal Party, you know, deplorables, as some people would call them. Uh, it was um, people that would otherwise have voted for the Greens. The hypocrisy is part of any given moral system. And I think we shouldn't <laughs> ignore, um, I don't think we should ignore the role that climate change plays uh, in this in in this moral sentiment that they have that it is the it is the damnation. It's the it's the sinfulness manifest. Um, I think you can't you can't separate one from the other. You can't separate that romantic vision from the doom that follows from us, you know, rejecting their vision. <laughs> Andrew Bushnell, the, our resident philosopher, uh, bringing everything back to a moral quandary. 
Other news this week, BuzzFeed, Huffington Post, uh, purveyors of fake news, certainly uh, so-called new media, but they've hit some snags and they're laying off uh, staff members, they're laying off journalists. Tell us about that, Chris Berg. Yeah, so this week um, we've seen some really big ructions in the in the new media sphere, so particularly with the Huffington Post, which has been around um, uh, the better part of 10 years, I, I think, but but more um, significantly BuzzFeed. So BuzzFeed is an online um, news site, first known for the sort of clickbait quizzes and that sort of thing that you would see on Facebook and other social media all the time. And and they've, in the last couple of years, they've invested really heavily into, into what they say is their news gathering business. They've announced a 15% reduction in staff. Um, they've got about 1,300 staff around the world. So this is a pretty big reduction. Um, it's going to affect the Australian operations as well, I think this is quite a significant and interesting story for a couple of reasons, though. Um, first of all, it's it's really politically um, poignant, given BuzzFeed um, made global news quite recently when it um, purported to to make some uh, to discover something in the Donald Trump um, uh, Russia cover up. Um, investigation, uh, which was apparently shut down quite clearly by um, by the special counsel's office. But it's also really significant because this is the environment in which all of global politics operates now. So on the one hand, you've got a um, really declining traditional media. Um, you've got newspapers closing around the world. You've got staff reductions. And, and we were hoping that the online media would be able to fill some of that space. Turns out that either that's impossible or it's a lot harder than a lot of people thought. Yeah, I think that, um, look, I, I think it's bad to, to take pleasure in anyone else's misfortune. My, my dad was a journal and it's a, it's a tough racket and it's actually getting, it's getting tougher. So I, I appreciate that there are, there's a human element here. That said, it's, it's really hard to, to feel sad when an organisation like BuzzFeed gets a setback uh, and that's because you know what they're marketing isn't really anything that warrants the name journalism it's just activism um, packaged up uh, as news and I think if the marketing if the market uh, is indicating that their brand of dishonesty is becoming less profitable then that's a good thing I welcome that and the, I mean the, the journalism aspect has kind of moved away from their sort of core stuff right like um I, I never imagined um, BuzzFeed sort of really um, doing well out of the hard-hitting news, um, you know, sort of angle. Because when you're looking for that sort of content, BuzzFeed isn't the first place you would think to go and look for that hard-hitting analysis or or hard-hitting sort of fact-finding stuff. That's not, that's not to say they haven't broken any stories um, here in Australia or haven't published any relevant information, but... Um, the, the, the sort of clickbait stuff. I, I thought it was some hilarious that a, that a former uh, BuzzFeed employee has created a quiz, a BuzzFeed quiz about um, are you getting made redundant? And uh, you know, <laughs> there's there's ten different questions to answer, and uh, I think no matter which uh, which combination you pick, I think the answer is uh, is yes. Uh, see you later. So I so I reckon uh, uh, the. Interesting points, guys. I reckon this is excessively precious because look at what newspapers are and look at what they have been in their heyday. And um, A, first of all, newspapers are, or just the media in general, is very biased. It is very um, uh, passionate. Advocacy journalism is inherent to the very concept of journalism, the idea that there's this sort of holy... 
um, uh, sort of magical objective journalism that comes on high and just hands out facts. That's never existed. What we're seeing now is um, uh, just an online version of that with a different sort of passion and a different and targeting a different generation. So I think I think that's the the first part. But the second part is all that nonsense that we talk about with BuzzFeed, all the silly quizzes, all the you know the recipes. One of BuzzFeed's big thing is called Tasty, which gives you videos of how to make food, which is great fun to watch. Um, uh, all that stuff is in the media now. So if you've ever picked up a weekend newspaper and flipped past the first five pages, and then you know you flick to the op-eds and then you close the newspaper, well, there's a whole lot of other stuff in there. There's recipes and gardening and quizzes and all that sort of stuff. J- just bland entertainment is part of the press. That's what funds it. This is why I think this is very sad. We may it it it. I don't, I'm I'm not sure that this is that that bad example that the whole online media world is going to collapse. But if this is an indicator of that, this is this is a very bad thing for um, politics and the news. And it may may well be it's just migrating to other platforms. But I, no, I, Chris, I, I take issue with that idea that it's no different. I mean, you, you're right about all all traditional media also had a had a slant. What it, for me has always been the bigger issue with you know the buzz the BuzzFeed approach and all that sort of clickbait that you see even at the bottom of reputable website is that it's all mashed up it's it's all put into a blender and I this has really changed the way everybody consumes news like you could as you say up the first five pages of of a Sydney Morning Herald or a, a, a Washington Post or whatever, you could read the hard news. And then you get to the lifestyle sections. What someone of of my vintage really still struggles with is that it's a constant stream in which it might be a quiz, it might be a story about Kate Middleton, followed by we must act on climate change now, followed by the Covington kids, followed by a recipe, and it's all mashed up. And so, uh, and we talk about culture wars. How How can you separate culture wars from politics when the way we consume news... And opinion, it's all put together. Now, that that speaks to something that I think is really significant here, which is how incredibly dependent sites like BuzzFeed and and current media sites like, you know, the, the left-leaning, but um, the news site The Guardian or something like that, how dependent they are on social media algorithms. And um, uh, if you look through um, BuzzFeed's corporate history, their ups and downs have been very dependent on whether, you know, Facebook is is presenting their material well or not. There's a, there's a real tension, though, I think, in in what we've heard from Chris here, right? On one hand, he's saying that all media products are basically garbage. And then on the <laughs> other hand, he's saying that the decline of yeah, BuzzFeed... listen to my podcast. Then, <laughs> yeah, but you're also saying that the decline of BuzzFeed is somehow a sad thing. And it can't be both of those things, right? If it's just one more garbage product um, in a garbage industry, then its decline doesn't matter. The only reason that this is an interesting story is because we all share an interest in getting facts right that's what we all what we all need is a is a media that we're in which there is a space for honest straight reporting and buzzfeed does not do that as they proved with their hit on trump that failed uh, and i think as a market signal when a business like this one declines that creates more space for what I recognise as real journalism and the straight reporting that my dad did. Right, and this is a you know classic Schumpeterian story, right? You know, creative destruction. Uh, that these journalists, if they're good journalists, 
they're going to get jobs um, in other outlets and, and continue to do good work and, and those sorts of things um, in, in another space. Um, it seems like one of those places that uh, the journalists looking for a job um, might flock to would be the ABC. And, and, and I guess a question for Chris, um, to what extent has the ABC crowded out uh, a, a profitability um, you know, for BuzzFeed and, and the, the Guardian and others? Yeah, look, that's definitely right. And, and the crowding out happens in um, two ways. And we, of course, Sinclair, uh, Professor Sinclair Davidson um, and my co-author of our Privatise the ABC book, which you should all buy and read. Nice plug. Um, uh, no, thank you. Well, I, get, I, get, I, I wait for free copies. <laughs> this was just a layup. Chris. This was a layup. But um, uh, so there is a crowding out effect. It's sometimes a bit hard to prove, but it definitely exists. And we can see it in um, certain markets. The crowding out is actually twofold, though. It's both for readers or watchers or listeners or or what have you. So it's for consumers, but it's also for um, uh, talent. So um, a lot of people, um, uh, particularly in Fairfax, will complain privately that um, it's very hard to battle for talent in an environment where the ABC can give people much more steady work, um, sometimes much better pay, uh, so, so they have this they have this huge challenge that um, they're competing in both the market for talent and and for voice. The crowding out happens. I I um, I feel sorry for these online, even these lefty online services, these lefty online journalism outfits because they have to compete against public broadcasting. They have to compete against the one billion dollar public policy program that is the ABC. Thank you, Chris. And now the big global talk fest at Davos has just concluded. And one of the many, many speeches watched by the great and the good was by New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, uh, who had something to say about her government's priorities. Uh, Jacinda is a progressive darling. And uh, let's have a listen to the clip. James Bolt, our producer, would you please play the clip for our listeners and then we'll talk about it. Look, in New Zealand, we're roughly projecting 3%. Um, growth, our unemployment's at 3.9% on traditional measures, budget surpluses. People would look at us and go, you're doing okay. But we have homelessness at staggering rates. One of the highest rates of youth suicide in the OECD. Our mental health and well-being is not what it should be. So our plan is through the well-being work that we're doing, a living standards framework, and our well-being budget, where if you're a minister, you want to spend money, you have to prove that you are going to improve intergenerational well-being. That's just a short clip from Jacinda Ardern at Davos as part of a longer speech about really why she believes that GDP is not a suitable measure for the achievements of a country, for her country, New Zealand. She believes that well-being uh, is part of what they should focus on and, and believes it can be a tool for policymakers. Chris Berg. This is an incredible straw man. Um, by Jacinda Ardern, there are no governments on the planet that are solely focused on GDP exactly. at all. There is no government that says, oh, all we have to do is incre increase GDP or GDP per capita or something like that. Every government cares about the well-being of its citizens. Every government has, a, to a degree, an alternative um, framework, pursuit, whatever, whatever it is. But I think she's doing something really tricky here as well. Um, I think she's jumping from the claim that GDP is not a perfect measure of progress and moving very fast away from that and saying, well, the, and this is why we shouldn't focus so much on economic growth. Um, the, the, the statement that she made was she's going to broaden the government's focus beyond economic and fiscal 
policy. Now, the government's focus yeah, is beyond... Who'd ever thought of that? Yeah, no, I, I, know, I know. But that's much stronger than saying, oh, well, GDP is not very good. It doesn't cover, you know, CPI very well. All that sort of... It's a totally different thing. Um, uh, and and I, I think what she's doing is it's the most perfect Davos speech because it's utterly... Utterly empty, but it looks good, and it'll get the Financial Times to write about it. Aaron Lane, you're a, you actually lecture in economics. Uh, would you be out of a job in Jacinda Ardern's world? Well, look, I, I don't think so. I think people are still going to um, pay attention to the economic fundamentals um, because ultimately, um, businesses are going to use uh, economic indicators to do economic forecasting. They're not going to look at um, some sort of you know um, well-being. Uh, indicator, whatever that might consist of. And, and we've seen these things before, you know, we, we've seen the, the happiness index and, and those sorts of things. Um, so what, what exactly will make up, you know, this well-being portfolio? It's not clear. Um, but as Chris said, um, it's it's hardly like governments just pay attention uh, to economics. Um, I, quite frankly, I wish they would. I wish that was their their primary and only concern is, is, is looking at uh, the, the health of the economy and, and, and cutting red tape and, you know, deregulation and all those sorts of things. But uh, we've really got this uh, paternal state. And isn't that taking it to the extreme if, if governments are uh, solely focused on um, this intergenerational well-being? I mean, um, how, do, how do an intergenerational um, has a well-being to start with um, is a mystery. But um, I think this is an expansion of that uh, sort of paternal state. So we're led to believe here, if I understand her correctly, that GDP is a garbage measure. Well, okay, fair enough. I mean, I think that most aggregate measures are. And that's the problem, right? We're going to re- what she's actually proposing is replacing one measure that she doesn't like with another measure that she does like, but without addressing the underlying reasons why GDP doesn't do the things that she wants it to do, which is that... Um, you know, you're trying to cram the hu- the human experience of living in a society into these measures, and this is the as you said, Scott, the perfect uh, Davos or Chris, I think, said the perfect expression of the Davos mentality. It's what I call the McKinsey mindset. It's that that big consulting firm idea that basically everything is measurable. If you come up with the right metric, you can just scale human experience down to that. And then the problem with that is that. You know, once you devise your metrics, and she, she actually said this, we need the challenge is to make sure that what gets measured gets done, right? But when you're talking about people, this is actually a really sinister uh, idea because what you're saying is we're going to measure the people in a certain way and then we're going to construct the people to meet the measure so that we tick our boxes. No, we- I think that's quite right. Uh, there, there are two aspects to this for me, one, one of which is in terms of what actually is conducive to economic growth. And there's a famous story about the administrator administrator of Hong Kong uh, in the 1950s who absolutely refused to collect aggregate statistics because he knew that as soon as he started collecting them, bureaucrats would start setting targets and believe that it was their job to achieve certain outcomes. And the result was one of the freest economies in the world with tremendous economic growth, but it wasn't created by the bureaucrats. And similarly, it's, this is a collective... Uh, conception. It's aggregate data and aggregate outcomes which can be achieved by government. So instead of, uh, say, the American creed of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, which is an, an individual concern and the const- uh, constitution is there to enable the individual pursuit of happiness, happiness has now mi- migrated into something that governments can and should be responsible for. So it is uh, the most sort of anodyne Davos speech, but 
the reason why we wanted to talk about it today is that it is uh, a window into something deeper. Right. So, you know, if, if we don't get the outcomes, we're going to have to pass all these um, controls so that we get people to behave the way that we want them to behave. Um, you know, as I said, it's really, um, you know, taking that idea of the, the paternal or the maternal um, state perhaps um, to, to that point. Um, but just getting back to GDP, um, GDP functions uh, as a, a good measure. Um, is, is, it, um, is it the best measure of everything and is it the best measure of the health of everything? No. Um, what GDP does is compare output in one country in one given year to output uh, in the previous year. Uh, and, you know, it usually expresses that in terms of a percentage and we get, you know, 3.4% or, or whatever it might be. What that is telling us is that um, if GDP increases by 3%, let's say, discounting for inflation, then that country is producing more stuff. Um, and we can then um, extrapolate out and say, well, that means people are consuming more things uh, so that our standard of living uh, is getting better as a whole. Now, um, will that mean that every single person in the country is better off? No. Um, does that mean overall we're producing more? Yes. So I, I think the problem with economic stats is that we use them to, um, to, to kind of prove a point that um, it's, it's not really the point of that, that data. Um, and so that, that's, that's why we always look at, at different measures. You know, we want to look at the GDP rate. We want to look at the inflation rate. We want to look at the unemployment rate. And yes, things like homelessness, youth suicide that uh, Jacinda Ardern mentioned are important measures too. And we should look at those. The, the, that's right, Aaron, but the, the, the problem is I think that what she's getting at is that this – or purporting to get at is this materialist mindset that everything that goes into someone having a good life uh, is or can be captured by material concerns. So when the economy is growing, what she's saying is that's not necessarily making anyone uh, happier or better off um, in a non-material sense. But the irony of it is that what she's proposing in response to that – is to create metrics that purport to capture non-material goods. But in doing so, we'll turn those non-material goods into material goods. So just as the, the irony of this is that uh, even as progressives try to integrate non-material goods like happiness into their worldview, they actually just reinforce their materialist <laughs> approach to policy, which is that the government is in control of the entire material space of a country. And then if we manipulate that space in just the right way, then everything will be perfect. So it's just another expression of this rationalist perfectionism that has caused, you know, that's what causes problems down the line oh, it's, a, it's a wretched in, enlightenment again, isn't it, Andrew? It's been, it's been it's, downhill ever since, hasn't it? These infernal sophisters and calculators. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, 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 I want to make a, I, I a defence of sophists and calculators. I think that the government should myopically focus on growth. And, and it should, sophistry. And it, <laughs> it should myopically focus on growth and it should myopically focus on, on how it measures that growth as well. Because we, uh, I read um, Tyler Cowen's Stubborn Attachment. Tyler Cowen is a um, uh, professor of economics at the Mercatus um, Centre in the United States, and he's written a, a really fascinating book called Stuff and Attachments, which is basically his outline of a, what what government should do in his in his in his personal view. And he makes a really compelling case that we 
as a society systematically underestimate the value of just economic growth. When income doubles every 50 years, that sounds like sort of a disembodied statistic, but the effect on living standards, the effect on prosperity, the effect on well-being, in Jacinda Ardern's phrase, the effect on um, uh, you know happiness and all that sort of thing is, is just exponential. His claim is no matter what we think about inequality or um, uh, you know all these social justice goals. The most important thing that we could be doing right now is maximizing economic growth almost to the exclusion of anything else. I think that's absolutely right. And, and the other thing uh, about it is that's the macro challenge. Even when you get to the micro challenge, so uh, homelessness was one of the issues uh, that Jacinda Ardern uh, identified as saying, you know, this will solve that that problem. Well, it, well, it won't at all. Uh, and in fact, uh, there's a ripper paper by um, uh, published by the Centre for Independent Studies, the uh, uh, Sydney-based free market think tank uh, by uh, Carlos de Brera, uh, about homelessness, where he's pointed out that these are um, that part of the reason why there is no movement towards solving the inverted commas problem of homelessness is that it has been defined by all sorts of macro measures. And the, uh, the policy advocates keep inflating the numbers by having the broadest possible definition of homelessness. Whereas if you actually walk around the streets of Melbourne or Sydney or other major capitals, what you see are people sleeping on the streets uh, who would rightly be the focus. And uh, his point um, as a healthcare professional, uh, I think psychologist or psychotherapist, is it's, there are mental health issues underlying all of that. And if you actually focus on the real problems rather than trying to create new metrics of well-being, I mean, you could go and do a happiness survey of the people sleeping on the streets of Melbourne, but I don't think it would actually lead you any closer towards solving the problem. No, and it's counterproductive because you stop thinking about um, uh, you, you stop thinking about the sort of systematic problems that might lead someone into homelessness. So um, problems in the housing market, expensive housing, uh, failure for housing to meet supply and demand, all that's really deep problems that are caused by deep regulatory planning issues and so forth. Rather that, and, and if you start putting that, oh, we're going to measure this in the New Zealand budget, and it's going to be one of the real things that we're, our government is judged against, you're going to just try to paper that over. You're going to target the metric, to Andrew's point, you're going to focus solely on changing that specific measure rather than the problems that underlie it. Chris, there's also the, the question of who's the best person to tackle these issues? You know, is it, is it the Beehive in New Zealand? Is it, is it Parliament House in Canberra? Um, or is it, is it civil society um, and, and charities and, and those other organisations that are, that are already doing that good work? Um, if we if we start ceding more and more responsibility to the state, um, civil society is le you know left out left out of the mix, um, and uh, I think these deep human problems um, need to be solved by people that are, are closest to those people with the problems. You can see exactly what Aaron is talking about. I think when Jacinda Ardern starts talking about the economics of kindness. Um, and so, which we used to be just called paternalism, I guess. Um, <laughs> and I think because she, she's she's talking about that in in this Davos speech, she was talking about this in the context of protectionism, and she was saying, well, in lieu of um, 
peeling, uh, pulling back on free trade and putting up protective barriers will insulate people from the, the effects of changes, the dynamism of the market with this e- economics of kindness. Um, and what you, what you see there is a kind of example of how um, the state wants to pull in two directions at once. So it, on one hand, it, it wants to create a more individualised, liberalised world because that's what generates wealth for it. But on the other hand, it wants to step in to fill the gaps that that creates. So this is the, you know, this is the classic or, you know, Patrick Deneen critique from last year of liberalism failing. Um, you can see this, I think, in what she's talking about. She's saying, well, we're committed now. And New Zealand is, is a free trade country. It's one of the most open economies in the world, I think. Um, but she's saying, well, I, I know I can't tinker with that, so I'm going to tinker with all these other things to try and insulate you from the effects and of it's, that. And it's because their economy relies, even more so than Australia's economy, relies so much on exports. Um, and so that's that's sort of driven their, their free trade agenda. Um, um, but I, I couldn't help um, sort of when I was watching the clip, um, thinking about the parallels um, bes- between Jacinta Ardern and Barack Obama. Um, Obama was known as being this sort of brilliant, um, you know, handsome orator. And um, you, you can see a bit of a parallel in Ardern, you know, very, very well spoken, um, uses these phrases, you know, the, the, the economics of kindness. To, and you, you, you're not along and you're sort of captivated well, by I'm the kind. speech. Um, but you, you, you drill down a bit and um, you, you, you start and, to realise... Trudeau, Trudeau in Canada were right, very much of that right, ilk as well. Right, um, Less you know, this is the This is the sort of the new progressive uh, leaders that, um, that, that, that are nice, um, you know, uh, and good-looking uh, and, you know, speak really well. Um, but when it comes down to it, what do they, what do they actually achieve? Why is there... So a question for the, for the group for the team. Um, why is there a obvious demand for this sort of soft, really thin, quasi-intellectual um, rethinking about what governments do? So we're in the middle of this um, uh, huge global debate about populism and the answer of a Jacinda Ardern, and not to pick on her, but this is a shared view of the whole Davos crowd, I think. Um, the answer is, well, we need the government to focus more on wellness. Why, why is that? The, the response to the populist challenge? Because the problems are real. I mean, the, 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 pro- the problems that they're trying to address are real, that people are, you know, wa- wages are stagnant, people don't have the opportunities that, that their parents had. You know, people of a certain generation, Jacinda Ardern's generation, my generation, she's the same age as me, basically, um, can't afford a house the same way that their parents could. Um, they're, you know, people working two jobs, they're working more flexible hours, they don't have the benefits of weekends. These are real, these are real problems that have pulled at some of the community, uh, community-based organisation uh, you know, that, that has traditionally buffeted individuals or, or, or um, pr- acted as a bulwark or protection for individuals against the vicissitudes of the market. And I think that, that's a real problem that they're, they're trying to address. But what they basically, and this is again, this is like the, the Patrick Deneen critique, is that um, it's an attempt to double down. It's basically to say, look, we know that the the atomization of you as an individual has caused these problems, but we're going to further atomize you by denuding all of the other non-economic concepts that you use to structure your life uh, and fit them into our government playbook as well, so that you'll be the perfect atom. And it's actually atom is actually the wrong image because what they're talking about is turning you into a cog. 
If you'd like to know more about Andrew Bushnell's take on Patrick Tanine's Why Liberalism Failed, you can read that at the IPA website uh, in an article that he wrote for the IPA Review, our magazine, which as a member you would of course receive, and uh, reviewed along with books by Roger Scruton and Andrew, the other one was... Jonah Goldberg. I was somewhat more critical of, of Deneen in that piece than I have been here Um you know, because I do think I don't think he I don't think he's exactly right. Because either. yes, but, but clearly this is uh, exactly the uh, repudiation of Davos, and they are they are looking around uh, for an agenda to take forward. Uh, whether or not the leaders of Poland and Hungary and all those other countries that uh, Davos man is appalled by would actually care what Jacinda Ardern thinks is entirely another question. We might move now to ask the panel: What have you been reading, watching, and listening to? Aaron Lane. Scott, something that I've been uh, sort of binge watching over the last few days uh, is The Innocent Man on Netflix. Uh, And this sort of tells uh, the true story of two murders in Ada, Oklahoma, in the United States. Um, And uh, there were two sort of young uh, females murdered um, between sort of 1983 and 1986. Um, And uh, there were a number of men uh, that went to prison uh, for those crimes. Um, one of those men got the death penalty. Uh, and this uh, is based on John Grisham's uh, 2006 book by the same name. Uh, so it was his only uh, non-fiction uh, title uh, to date. And uh, it's, it's sort of the, you know, it's the, it's the mini-series, it's the Netflix kind of documentary version of the book, I guess, um, and it's it's in the similar vein, I guess, uh, in the you know making of a murderer, the serial podcasts, and and those sorts of true crime stuff we've heard. Um, Trace um, and the teacher's pet in Australia, so it's kind of building on those the, those um, those themes and and that sort of audience. Um, but since the since the book was written in two thousand and six. Uh, there, you know, there's new documents, there's new court files, there's um, new appeals, uh, and what we learn from it um, is that, you know, we've got uh, suspects that are hidden um, from the defence and the jury. Other suspects, that is, um, Brady violations, which is uh, not. Uh, handing over material that uh, that could um, you know potentially acquit you. There's missing reports, fabricated reports, civil cases. So there's a lot of new material in there. Um, and the striking thing for me was um, one of the men who was subsequently released uh, on new DNA evidence, um, and and that's kind of the theme of it is that um, you know with new technology. After how many years would he have been um, released? Uh, th- three decades in prison. Good lord. He was three days at one point. He was three days away from being executed. Well, For, did, was there an involvement of the Innocence Project? Yes, yes. Uh, so um, John Grisham is on the board of the Innocence Project, um, and they've got involvement in that. And which, it just, which is. Uh, which is a project um, that is – it's kind of like a legal aid service. Um, it's, a, it's a private body, um, uh, so not government run. Uh, it's a private body that looks at overturning um, wrongful convictions. Um, and so they do a lot of death penalty case work, but they also do other, other sort of serious crime work as well. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic um, sort of look into the perils of the justice system. So – yeah, this, yeah, that's my pick. This is, it's, it's interesting. I haven't, I haven't watched this one, but there's like a uh, Netflix. It's, it's almost a mini genre on Netflix. Is these true crime documentaries, but they're about um, getting people off. 
the crime. So they have like the <laughs> confession tapes and making a murderer right. and this one. Right. And well, the conf- the confession tapes is like um, about bullying confessions out of people. Um, and it's pretty interesting. But on the other hand, you sort of wonder what the agenda is with Netflix. I mean, you always have to wonder with Netflix what their agenda is when they're producing these things. You wonder what the agenda of Netflix is? Yeah. <laughs> Nef- Nef- Netflix is... Television. Ne- you're Netflix- gonna get, television, you're get television. more television. No, no. Ne- Netflix, is one of, ne- Netflix is one of the most insidious because convenient and great... Uh, propaganda services ever devised, um, and it's pretty clear. It's pretty clear that they have an agenda of completely uh, delegitimizing the U.S. criminal justice system, which is of interest to me in my work here at the IPA on criminal justice. Because I'm sympathetic, you know. Obviously, I don't want to see innocent people put in jail either. But um, the confession tapes is in, just on this theme is like way overblown. It's like these people may well have done these crimes. Um, anyway. <laughs> The, w- the widespread assumption that uh, they couldn't possibly have been have been guilty. Yeah, the police abuse. I mean, obviously, police abuse is bad, and we have the protections against it for good reasons. Um, but it's irresponsible when you're telling the story. I think, as opposed to acting as a lawyer, it's irresponsible when you're telling the story to base your story entirely on what are essentially uh, often technical acquittals, um, because the public condemnation that should go with doing the bad acts should still follow even if the prosecution blows the case. I think we are, we are living through a generation, though, where this is to the fore because of DNA. I mean, there really must be a, a backlog. Perhaps in 10 years' time, there, we, we won't be watching documentaries like this before because we'll have cleared the backlog, but the, uh, the ability of DNA evidence to come and come back and clean up these cases is remarkable. Right, and and also, you know, it's it's a good reminder as well, though, that the DNA isn't perfect. Um, you know, I've worked in a number of cases that, um, you know, relied on DNA evidence, um, and that's not perfect either. Uh, and, you know, the, the testing procedures and, and those sorts of things, um, it, it can never be perfect and it served to me as just a good reminder because it can never be perfect um, just how bad state-sanctioned killing um, with the death penalty is. To go to go slightly off script, but on that point, um, uh, there's a fantastic book, and this isn't my pick for the week, but there's a fantastic book on um, uh, on the challenges of pre-DNA evidence, like bite mark analysis and yeah. so forth, written by Radley Balco, who's an American a libertarian um, uh, American journalist called The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist. It's a really challenging read because the crimes that it describes are so horrific but also um the the absolute scandal in the failure to adequately assess the quality of the evidence in in these court cases was just horrifying very good um one to look out for uh and what is your pick chris my pick is a um book called how the internet happened by brian mcculloch it's a history of the internet in the 1990s after the internet um became commercial, um, all the firms that tried to um, get involved. I'm professionally interested in this because of our work at RMIT on blockchain and there's been this big blockchain bubble and all this investment going in and everybody said, well, this is this is like the collapse of the internet bubble uh, 1.0 and this is the 2.0 bubble. Um, uh, you know, but the stories behind, you know, the, the famous pets.com and so forth. But what it, what it actually does tell you is a couple of things. It tells you um, uh, the origins of many of the brands 
that you're very familiar with, Google obviously, but Yahoo, um, AOL. I was a teenager when, when the internet was coming out and I remember getting all these AOL discs in the mail. Well, understanding that that was a massive campaign to send basically every American household and many Australian households um, multiple copies of these AOL discs. But it also, um, one of the arguments of the book's authors is that we have we laugh about the phrase "information superhighway" as an early state, um, yes, early yes, phrase. Yes, we, yes, we do. Internet. But his argument, and I'm not sure how much I buy it, but it's an interesting argument. Information superhighway meant something else in the 1990s. It meant much more of a sort of corporate conglomerate internet, it, more along the AOL. CompuServe, Microsoft would serve you or um, Time Warner would serve you information down the information superhighway. And what we get got instead was a much more decentralized, much more open internet. And that turns out has been, has been fantastic. Um, but it's quite different from the original, more centralized ideas that, that a lot of people thought happened. I think this is an interesting book mainly because it sort of shows us the direction that the internet could go. I just have a question. Does it talk about China? Because China, of course, um, through uh, some of its uh, through Alibaba and, and other platforms, has a conception of the internet that's actually much closer to say what AOL was trying to achieve. Like there is, it's not an open platform. It's it's really you get on to the, the equivalent of the internet through these providers, which are then also heavily regulated via the state. Does it talk about that at all? Yeah, it it doesn't, and it's very much an American centric book. The in internet came to China in the very late 1990s um, and there's a very good book uh, by uh, about Jack Ma on um, who's the founder of Alibaba about bringing the internet into into China but but I think your critique or your your points is, is quite right China has a different model and totalitarian states in general have a different model about how they can deal with this rather decentralized network. It's interesting Chris um, given our mutual interest in blockchain it's kind of the reverse in in that space that you know, initially um, blockchain and cryptocurrencies were sort of invented as this completely autonomous, completely decentralized sort of space. But all the investment at the moment is happening in these sort of proprietary blockchains with, with IBM and the other sort of big conglomerates sort of happening in that space. Yeah, no. Is there I, a reverse I, happening there? No, no, I think that's right. I think what, what we see in the internet world is um, uh, initially very open. The internet was initially um, uh, sort of a, uh, just a, a, a network and there wasn't much corporate investment, then the corporate investment comes in and you see a quasi-monopolizing, um, but, but then the decentralized tendencies of this, this play out. And if you tell the same story in the context of social media, it gives you a very optimistic story as well. So in the early 19, in the early 2000s, we had blogs. Then, um, you know, to our, around 2010, we started getting Facebook and Twitter and, and so forth. And I, I hope that we're going to move back towards a decentralized system, which to wrap it up, um, will, I hope, help with some of the challenges that these online media services are facing with the dominance of Facebook and so forth. So just a reminder that you are listening to the IPA's Looking Forward podcast, but that was our obligatory blockchain reference. <laughs> uh, it's it's called the Blockchain Minute. Yeah, yeah, it's the the Blockchain Minute. It's part, of, part of Berg's contract. <laughs> that we get that in there somewhere, and, uh, and Aaron's too, I think. Um, Andrew Bushnell, what have you been looking at? Oh, I've been watching some of the, the awards contending movies. I do this every year, even though they get worse every year. <laughs> um, uh, and, of course, this, this current crop is, is, is pretty bad, to be honest. Um, and they're all, very, they're all very political. But I wanted to talk just quickly about one that perhaps 
doesn't seem on the surface to be as as political. So um, one of the you know you've got political movies like Black Klansman, um, Black Panther is a political movie, um, Green Book is a political movie, but this movie is just supposed to be about you know it's a relationship between Bradley Cooper, who's a veteran rock star. And he discovers Lady Gaga singing in a club one night and it turns out she's a fantastic talent. This, this is A Star Is Born. A Star Is Born. Sorry, I, I left out the title. That's a key point. <laughs> a Star Is Born. But then just from the description of the plot, you might be able to guess it because this is the fifth version of this movie uh, to have ever been filmed, um, which means that I don't have to worry about spoiling it for you, I don't think. Um, but anyway, Bradley Cooper discovers Lady Gaga singing in a club. Um, and nurtures her career even as his is declining and he's an alcoholic and drug addict and uh, it doesn't end well for him but it does end well for her Um, and on the surface you would say well this is just kind of a love story it's kind of about drug addiction which is you know a social issue but it's not especially political everyone's quite sympathetic beneath the surface though (laughs) you you have detected political themes beneath the surface this this film is perhaps more revelatory of what the left actually believes <laughs> than any other movie this year. Um, and it's it, the moral content of this film reveals why left-wing politics is just so destructive. Uh, the film's message about art, and because this is about Hollywood, art is life, right? It's a Hollywood movie, art is life. The film's message is about authenticity and authentic self-expression. So Bradley Cooper... Failing himself a little bit, he gives a great performance, but as the, he's also the director of the film and he fails himself a little bit here. He lets, his, he lets his performance sort of drag on a little bit and he gives himself some big scenes that um, don't, don't really land because there's no engagement with his character. And the reason there's no engagement with his character is because the content of what he's saying is actually a repudiation of the entire movie. <laughs> he's telling Lady Gaga that her career needs to be about authentic self-expression. He says, you've got the audience's attention. They may start paying attention to someone else. In that moment, the only thing you can do is communicate your truth. Uh, And this is a problem. He has lived this life, right? There's no attempt made in the movie to connect his view of art to his self-destruction. This is actually really important because his self-destruction we learn is uh, because he's struggling to deal with his childhood trauma and his abusive alcoholic father um, and his relationship with his brother to the point where, towards the end, he confesses that his onstage performer is actually something that he stole from his brother as an imitation of his brother who he admires so much. And so the tragedy that this film wants you to believe is that he never found a way to express the real So he's not following his own advice, is that...? Yes, and that's the tragedy, apparently... But what the film doesn't interrogate is whether the pursuit of authentic self-expression is itself an act of self-destruction. And that's what (laughs) I would suggest, that you have to become... It's this this Gnostic idea that you have this divine spark that would only be released if the world, the, the terrible reality around you was just gotten away with or shaped in just the right way. And that's stupid. You have to become the person you need to be to achieve your end in life and you need to deal with your circumstances. That's much more healthy. And so just by as a point of contrast, last night on Netflix, I watched <laughs> a movie. Insidious. I watched I watched a, a movie that actually had a subtext that I thought was perhaps more healthy, which was Bird Box, where uh, which is Sandra Bullock. She has yes. to Sandra Bullock, I don't know if we've talked about this on the show or not, but Sandra Bullock uh, exists in a world where people suddenly mysteriously start 
committing suicide because they encounter this, this force in the world and they start committing suicide. And she has to protect her children from this force. And she goes from, at the start, a very selfish Bradley Cooper-like artist, only concerned with her self-expression, to making every sacrifice possible just to keep her children alive. She becomes what she needs to be to achieve a much more healthy purpose that is external to herself and connects with something that is true universally and not just true for her in this pathetic postmodern sense of telling my truth. And that's a Netflix original film to... to, uh, to Baffling, I know. <laughs> wow. Um, never thought we'd get Gnosticism into a review of... Um, a I, was de- I was determined to rush, rush the word Gnostic okay. past you. <laughs> awesome. Um, I will just... Uh, I have nothing so How deep to share. Uh, I am reading uh, a wonderful biography <laughs> of Winston Churchill by uh, the historian Andrew Roberts, uh, one time uh, guest of the IPA uh, here in Australia, um, a great writer, great historian, and uh, he points out that there have been over a thousand biographies of Churchill. I, f- I haven't read a thousand, but I reckon I've read probably ten or so uh, books by various authors, um, Martin Gilbert and others, but it's amazing the richness that you can still get out of, of going back to, to read about the great man and, and, and that someone like Andrew Roberts can still come up with new interpretations. So I, I commend that to everyone. I've only got up to about 1925 and if he, if he had have been hit by a car, well, he was hit by a car, but if he if – because he looked the wrong way while he was in New York and uh, crossing the road. But if he had have been killed in that accident, he still would have had a remarkable career – uh, one of the other things that makes me think about Australia is he famously moved from the conservative conservatives to the Liberals and then back again. Uh, but throughout that period of the early part of the 20th century, it was very, very fluid in the House of Commons. Uh, parties were splitting all the time. There were national governments being formed, but parts of parties didn't want to be part of it. Candidates would stand as conservatives and independent conservatives and Asquithian liberals and, and other types of liberals. Uh, Labor was on the rise. Uh, so whenever anybody tries to tell you that politics is broken because, you know, one part of the Tory party is arguing with the other part of the Tory party or whatever, that is actually called democracy. It's how it <laughs> works. And Churchill was just better at it. Uh, than many, and he did it because of the power of his um, ability to make speeches, uh, his incredible energy and determination, stuffed a lot of things up, of course, and that, that, that's all examined uh, in the book, but uh, also did some great things, and uh, uh, stuffing things up was how he learned a lot of the things that he then put into effect in World War II. So. To be political, there's a big lesson there, which you see anytime you read histories of the early 20th century in Australia or the UK or, or, or really anywhere, that the parties were a lot more fluid. And there's this attitude in Australia right now and, and around the world that, you know, oh, we couldn't, we couldn't let the Liberal Party split or we couldn't – what if the Republican Party didn't hold together over time? Well, you know, parties change, ideas change, people move between parties. That's good, that's healthy, that's democracy and we should be, you know, if it's for the right reason and so forth, we should be encouraging that sort of vibrant politics these days. We need more of it, not less of it. Thank you, Chris Berg. You've been listening to the IPA's Looking Forward podcast, which you can subscribe to on uh, iTunes and all the great podcast platforms, or you can access it via our website, where you can also find information about becoming a member of the IPA if you're not already supporting programs like this and, of course, our research. 
Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week.